Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. This is Noah, and I'm joined today by Lou. Hey, guys. And Walter. Hey. And we'd like to talk to you this week about basically the role that technology is playing in this ongoing sort of coronavirus situation. I mean, obviously, we're using technology to record right now because we're all under lockdown. But there are certain people, shall we say, in the world that are taking advantage of this opportunity to push forward a tech forward agenda that is our contention is ultimately going to make life worse for everybody. But before we really get into it, uh, what I'd like to do is just open it up for you guys. And uh, let's just talk kind of about how are our lives going uh, currently? I mean, I made a really kick-ass loaf of bread this week, (laughs) Uh, but that's not work related. Uh, I it's the same as last week. I mean, we're starting to work on, you know, plans for reopening and that's going to be hotly debated for weeks to come. Um, you know, yeah, same old, same old could be worse. At least I'm not out there. Walter. I've, I've discovered the joys of air frying things. Uh, so <laughs> not, not, not doing the loaf thing like the rest of the, uh, the quarantine lockdown folks, but it, it has its own pleasures of, uh, being able to flash fry meats in a quick amount of time. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been fine. Like we're, I, I work at a large institution locally. You may have heard of that just announced a bunch of furloughs. Uh, so I'm going to be, uh, working three weeks and off for a load a week and collecting unemployment starting soon. Um, so that, that hasn't been great. Um, but other than that, you know, I've been keeping on lockdown. Well, like I said last week, I've continued to do the remote teaching thing. It's, um, it's especially interesting as we sort of wear on because my building is still refusing to tell us where our financial situation is at. And, they they pretty clearly don't know what the heck we're going to do when we come back because being a school not a not a college or a university it seems like it's pretty difficult for them to figure out uh here's how we can build the teaching schedule and this and that and so on um so it's it's tough we are very lost people have stopped answering emails for the most part uh and because you know Wi-Fi connections are problems, things like that. When you put that together with like kids who are already very distractible and who are already having a lot of trouble keeping up with stuff, that that makes it a real tough situation. Um, and you'll notice that uh, a kind of theme. I said this already, but we're using technology to record all of our all of the work that we're talking about right now is enabled uh, for all three of us for uh, by. Um, by technology, by by virtual meetings, by uh, all sorts of content management and learning management systems, by all sorts of apps, because we love the apps and we've never had more of them. 
And this is not all to the good, I think, is something we can all agree on, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like this is the miracle that all these app developers have been waiting for for years when, you know, they they design this app or or whatever that is kind of obscure and you look at them and say, well, can't you just do that by, I don't know, a text or an email or walk over and say, Hey, what's up for five minutes. So this is their like vindication for all these years of work. And now they're finally uh, able to say, see, it's not completely useless. I wasn't a crackpot. Ah, ha, ha. Uh, so congratulations to them. You were right. Well done. Yeah, they used to make their pitch that these apps and these technologies were going to make things more convenient for people. And that was kind of like the extent of their, uh, you know, their rhetoric, like, you know, how, how great is this going to be? You're going to be able to do so many things and it's going to be really easy and efficient. And, you know, I think people did buy into that. You know, there's a reason people have Alexas in their homes. But there was a lot of pushback to that. Like, do I want to give up other things I cherish because it's going to make my life easier? Uh, you know, it, it's a trade-off, you know, I'm not necessarily willing to make in all circumstances, but now they've been able to shift their rhetoric away from convenience and towards safety. And so that's a much easier sell because people are scared like, Oh, these distant meetings, they're not just convenient. They're going to keep you safe or like, Oh, these work from home, uh, assistance apps. They're not going to keep you more. They're not just going to make you more efficient. They're going to keep you from going to work where it's unsafe. I don't see how we're going to be able to roll that back successfully, even after COVID. They're always going to be able to be like, hey, remember that epidemic? What if that happens again? Better to just be safe. Yeah. So like for my workplace, we were already prepared to have work from home programs. Um, by and large, it wasn't the standard, but we had already moved to everything on the cloud um, they had been pushing forever for us to use Teams, um, which nobody liked or found useful because you could just like poke your head out your office or cubicle and say like, hey, what about this? And you go, okay. And then that was the end of that conversation. So there didn't need to be a thread in some application or whatever. And now we do use Teams, but mostly for group chats. You know, it's just the DM on a, a, a different product. But yeah, like we had been prepared for that before stuff happens. And then, you know, so the transition for us in particular into work from home wasn't really that difficult. See, we're we're in a weird middle spot here because if you've if you work in education over the past 10 years or so, which is coincidentally the entire length of time I've been working in education, what you very quickly find out is that you can basically put the words technology, classroom, or school, or learning together, and you can find yourself six figures of money pretty much doing nothing. So my school had gone whole hog on the technology thing, except when it was led by teachers. Then suddenly it was a problem. But as long as it was something that administration or that the kids or their parents wanted to implement, then it was all tech all the time, right? And 
what we have found since we went to distance learning and that kind of thing is that, you know, kids are going to still be kids. It, it doesn't matter how much you ask them to get up early. They're not going to get up early. It doesn't matter how much you switch the work model. For a lot of our kids, they were essentially getting by on depending on having a teacher in the room who could help them do the work uh, in a minute by minute way. They hadn't really developed a lot of independent study or learning skills, and that's not their fault. It's that we've created a school culture that allowed them to do that in my building anyway. And so now they're they're struggling quite a bit, and we have to do a lot more support work to get them ready to be able to handle this stuff. Um, and of course, after a couple of weeks, they all uh, discovered that if you that if they said they missed teachers, then administration would try to push Zoom on us. So you had teachers with terrible connections trying to hold Zoom meetings. You had uh, you know kids showing up still in bed to one on one Zoom conversations. All this just kind of uh, the the last little bits uh, of of any kind of uh, politeness or manners really were just gone. But. Uh, Walter, I think you mentioned that you had a particular experience that happened to you with this kind of work from home technology. Yeah, I'll just build on what you were saying about the classroom too before going into that because I think it's important too. Like it really just shows how important those classroom spaces are as you know sites of learning because uh, it does you know you can manage them better or worse you know to help kids learn how to think independently. But like just having a space where focus focus on a subject matter happens is vital. And I think if, if nothing else, this distance learning has exposed the lie that distance learning is more efficient or is more, you know, a practical matter than having people in classrooms. You know, we're not going to lose the importance of classrooms, no matter what our, our tech masters want us to think. But uh, that that's not my main job, unlike, it, unlike for Noah. Um, so I, through this whole thing, we learned very easily just how inessential it was to have for us to have ever been in an office. You know, I, I work in a job that's basically over glorified data entry. So as long as you were able to access through the VPN, the software that, you know, we use to manage the data, you could do it anywhere as long as you have a decent internet connection. And so despite them kind of like fretting and hemming and hawing about sending us home uh, back in March when, you know, the COVID pandemic was starting to really accelerate, um, within a week, everyone learned like, oh, this is fine. Uh, you know, th- these jobs could always have been done from home. The only reason they had us in the office was based to manage us, to control us, to always be able to say that uh, they're the ones who are, you know, in charge and able at a moment's notice to stop by our desk and, you know, make sure we're, we're really working and, you know, working out what we're supposed to be working on. Um, and so it's been really kind of weird the way the managers in my my office have adjusted to the situation. So rather than tracking progress through the amount of data entered or, you know, the amount of work completed, you know, the ostensible purpose of the job, they're forcing us to track our progress almost like a lawyer's billable hours. Like we have to submit a report yeah. at the end of the day about how we spent our time, uh, you know, what we did during X amount of time, which is just a huge waste of time. But it, it's something the managers can look over and say, "Oh, blah blah." You know, what are you what are you doing this for at this time? Um, we have significantly more meetings than we had before, where the managers, you know, quote unquote, check in. Um, so every Monday uh, we have you know a huddle, which gross uh, on Zoom, 
and it's always just the it's always just the same thing. It's like, well, what are you guys doing this week? Well, entering data. You know, it's not not like there's much you know much variation here. <laughs> so, it, so you know, those things are just kind of like inconveniences and weird, and you know, just kind of like you know, the, the boss is throwing their weight around and proving they still matter, even though it's becoming more abundantly clear than ever that they don't, uh, you know, their purpose is to manage workers who don't need them. Um, but the, the truly disturbing thing that happened to me was I got an email from my manager one morning uh, letting me know that she'd run a report on the software we use to enter data. Um, and she noticed that I was not using the software for significant amounts of time. Um, and so she wanted to know, you know, what was I doing during the time I was not on the software entering data? And so I had to like come up with this like pretty exhaustive email, like explaining like, you know, there are aspects of this job that take place off the software. Like there are spreadsheets to manage and other, you know, little details and files and whatnot that have to be looked into. Uh, and, you know, ultimately the manager was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I was like, you know, it's weird that they don't know, you know, what the job actually is, but, you know, typical boss. Um, but then I was like disturbed that like, you know, that there was this extra level of surveillance brought into my work now. Like it wasn't enough for me to just complete my work as, you know, for what I'm being paid for. I had to complete the work in a way that uh, showed that I was working from the be- the minute I clocked in to the minute I ended. Uh, my day there, there couldn't be any gaps uh, in the work, even if, you know, the, the data entry requirements for the day weren't met. Um, and so that's been like that extra level of like tech surveillance available to them, uh, you know, is really, uh, really disturbing and really kind of a new, for me, at least not new in general, but new, like kind of panopticonish uh, way of being monitored at work. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. To, to your point that, you know, a lot of the, you know, having to work at a physical location is to just monitor workers. That's true. And that's something that the disability rights community has been saying for years is we are at the level of technology where for a good portion of work, especially if it is white collar, that is work that can be done remotely. And that is something that that has been said over and over again by some people. And it's only now that there's a threat to basically able-bodied people, to put it as bluntly and disgustingly as possible, that this is an option that they're rolling out. Um, so that's neat. And that definitely, it definitely creates a bigger divide between people who, the white-collar workers who can work from home and people who normally can't. Like, I'm in a weird, re- really weird situation because my normal job my normal job duties require me to be in a physical location. And so right now it's weird because I am both still employed and working and I am not furloughed for the time being, but I can't do my normal job. So my job description and what I actually have to do is completely different or, or, you know, the bulk of it, like some aspects of it were things I did briefly you know, once a month or whatever, but now it's, it's different. And that, that is a a source of stress for me. That said, uh, the working from home and what I'm doing now is so much less stressful than my normal job. It's really remarkable. Like I can just turn off my computer at five o'clock 
And I literally don't think about work for hours. It's amazing. I've never been able to do that before in my entire life. And that, that really to me speaks to the degree at which emotional labor and, and that, that incredibly high stress that emotional labor can bring it out in people um, is a part of my normal job. So this work from home thing is not too bad. It could be a lot worse. Yeah, it could be. Because meanwhile, I'm over here. And what I'm seeing is that I, I mean, I already couldn't leave work and stop thinking about it. That's just not part of a teacher's life anymore. But even at this, even in this situation, where theoretically, if you do the distance learning thing, right, you're supposed to be able to minimize how much you have to deal with outside of your regular working hours, either by setting your due dates in a certain way or by working with students or, or doing support work during the day. But what I have found is that I spend most of my, what I end up doing is getting up at the same time that I got up when I had to drive over to work and get dressed and do everything in the morning. Um, so that I can spend that time creating bulletproof material so that then I can sit in front of my computer all day just answering messages and emails and so on from the few students who are taking it seriously enough to do it during the school day, quote unquote. And then for the rest of the day, I'm waiting to get the inevitable emails of, can you open this assignment back up? Can you uh, I'm having trouble with this. I'm, and most of those are legitimate to some degree or another. And like I always have to say, I, I work with a population of students that's predisposed to certain bad habits. Um, and they're not the population of students that you probably think I'm referring to if you don't listen to a lot of punching out. But it's it's been a real struggle to be able to actually put the work away even more than it was, I think when I was going to a physical building, because at least then there was a separation. But the real reason I broke in here is because we were originally, I think we were originally kind of trying to segue into something else, but I think instead it would be better to call an audible here <laughs> because we've all discussed our experiences with you know surveillance. And I should add that my bosses have been very insistent when they say about those Zoom classes that they would love to drop by or that they will be checking our, you know, what we post on the learning management system, which is a thing they should have been doing already, but, you know, there it is. But all of this stuff that we've talked about, it could be worse. And here's an article from the Washington Post. It was published on April 30th. It's called, Managers Turn to Surveillance Software Always on Webcams to Ensure That Employees Are Really Working From Home. And it begins like this. When the coronavirus shuttered the Kansas headquarters of the High Plains Journal, an agricultural trade paper for farmers and ranchers across the Midwest, digital marketing director James Luce decided to replicate the office experience entirely online. Employees were told to create a digital avatar and spend their workday in a virtual office, replete with chat room cubicles and a gossip-ready, and there are quotes here, water cooler. They were also instructed to keep their home webcams and microphones on and at the ready, so a spontaneous face-to-face -face chat was always only a click away. Luce believes the software by the San Francisco tech startup Pragley, I think that's how it's pronounced, is the future of remote work, but not everyone is so smitten. One older employee who has struggled to adapt, barging clumsily into other people's video conversations or awkwardly lingering in someone's room, and that is also in quotes, after a meeting adjourned, recently changed her avatar's face to show it shedding a single tear. 
We have no shyness now at this point, Lou said. It's weirdly brought us a little closer together. Thoughts? And someone give that lady a hug. Yeah, I'm 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 with the lady. Uh I I'm shedding a tear just uh just hearing that. Just the thought of having the webcam at my computer on all times in my private space simply for the fact that uh just so managers can uphold their false ideology that when they're paying for your time, not your productivity, uh is 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 driving me bonkers. Here's here's the thing I kind of love about this, and I'm going to quote from the article again. This is Brad Miller, who is a chief executive for one of these companies that makes surveillance tech for workers. And uh, he says, it's silly to say, I just trust them all and close my eyes and hope for the best, he said. Some workers have grimaced at the surveillance, he added, but most should have nothing to hide. If you're uncomfortable with me confirming the obvious about your work, what does that say about your motives? I think what it says is that if you're hired to do a job, you want to believe that your managers trust you to get the work done. I mean, it's it's pretty. It was already pretty ridiculous, as we've been saying, the level to which workers are overmanaged and micromanaged in every possible way. But now, the fact that this should be a, a burst of freedom for them, and people like this guy are immediately taking that away from them, is so bleak. Yeah, it really is. There's an assumption that if you are not being watched all the time that you're going to goof off. But the worst part is there are so many people who do have to work from home right now that have kids, uh, younger kids, even especially because you you cannot leave a five-year-old, two-year-old or or any range, basically, I think up until 18, you cannot leave them unattended for long without them going and breaking stuff in your house. That is going to happen. And if you are in a situation where there's no daycare, no school, um, you're at home and so are your kids, you will not be able to work as much as you can. It's not going to happen. And what these companies are, are putting workers in the situations is they have to choose between work and making sure their house doesn't burn down because their two-year-old found the matches. That's really a stressful situation. Moreover, there are some kids and, and some households that don't have multiple devices for kids to connect to or school or whatever. And so they're having to balance and, and make that, that balance between work and life even more unstable than it already was. And we've talked at length on the show about how unstable that was. So, yeah, it's, it's very insulting to the extent to which managers don't believe that their workers are going to be productive at home. Um, and it's, I think if that I were in a situation where my work, my workplace were monitoring me as strongly as a lot of them are, I would be really hurt and I would not want to work there anymore. Um, and they're able to do this because there's such a shortage of available jobs right now that they don't want to say anything because they could lose their jobs. Yeah. The, the condescension of it is, is very hard to bear. You know, it, it's bad enough that you have, you know, you're, you're in a dependent relationship with this authority figure. Um, and if you cross them in some way, you, you risk putting your, your wages, um, you risk losing your wages. Um, and now, you know, 
you know, like, like you just said, Lou, there's approaching 30% unemployment. Sometimes, you know, this job is the only thing between you and destitution, even more so than the usual circumstances. Um, so you really just have to grin and bear it. Um, and exactly right. They can get away with it more so now. They have to justify their own jobs to their own managers even more than they did before, just like us. And so that's part of the reason why they're doubling down on, you know, the the extra management to show that they matter. I'll just mention as an aside here that when they did they announced furloughs in my department, the managers decidedly did not furlough themselves. They're they're too important mm. uh, to uh, cast themselves aside, even though they're the ones who make the most money and frankly do the least um, in, in running the office. But you know, minor aside, you know, the the point being, uh, you know, this is just re- revealing. Uh, there's the sort of the fragility of hierarchy in a capitalist society and really how unnecessary so many of these lines of power are, you know, it's just kind of power justifying itself um, and, you know, building it on the backs of, you know, the workforce they use to justify themselves and their, their positions in society. Um, And these surveillance tools they have now are just one more way for them to, collect data or collect information to show, uh, you know, the, the, the capitalists like, no, you know, we're, we're doing our jobs. We're managing, we're really, really managing. Um, and so please, please don't let us go. Walter, I was going to say that I, I, I actually think your aside has a lot of value there because, uh, in my experience, so I mentioned that my building has not been telling us anything, about uh, the budget for next year, about whether people will be brought back. We're not a public school, so it's not public information that everybody has access to. But what I will note is that the way that they've set up how they're going to do the contract structure for next year, the person who is actually apparently going to be signing the letters and sending out the contracts is not the person who normally does it and technically not the person who's supposed to be responsible for it. So the person who's actually going to end up making the budget cuts has very uh, noticeably left themselves out of the process and left somebody else holding the bag. And now it's not a person that I would say has a lot of positive feeling towards them at the moment anyway, but it's still kind of interesting how this information asymmetry has allowed uh, managers and especially upper managers to basically take advantage or even more advantage rather of the labor under them because this is how to me this is how teachers have been portrayed this whole time that this is supposedly the the kind of control that we had in our classrooms that this is how we treat students that this is why everyone hates school and and so on and so on and and all of these different things about education that uh, to sort of bring it back to the theme of the episode is why you have people uh, coming forth and saying, well, what we need to do is we need to implement all of these tech solutions and, and that will fix everything. And I think what we should probably do here is we'll take a quick break. And then when we're back, uh, we're going to talk about the ways in which this is not remotely accidental. This is entirely by design. And it is meant to enrich a very small class of people at the expense of the rest of us. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm here with Walter. Hey, guys. And Lou. Hey, guys. And when we left you, we'd been talking about uh, the myriad uses of technology in this modern post-pandemic landscape. Well, I guess we're still in the pandemic, but the point is how subjected to surveillance we are by our workplaces and how the worst people in the world are finding ways to take what little freedom and and de-stress capability working from home had away from us. And now we'd like to slightly shift gears and we're going to talk about of course, a, a longtime friend of the show who's been in the news a lot lately. And we just like to give a little shout out and talk about what Andrew Cuomo has been doing lately. Well, he gave his mother a Mother's Day shout out today. So good Italian man. If you're That's one of a the nice mama's 80% boy percent of New Yorkers who supports Andrew Cuomo, the response to the pandemic, we're hoping to change your mind over the next half hour. Yes. And if we can't change your mind, well, I mean, keep listening. We might manage it in one of the coming weeks. What what exactly was America's Ita- Italian father doing this week um, that that made him newsworthy to us for two weeks in a row? He like got a bunch of billionaires on retainer to reimagine how to do life in in a COVID reality. So I don't remember their names because I'm bad with names, but they were billionaires and nobody cares. Well, let's see. It's a real rogues gallery what we've got here because we've got like, what is it? Eric Schmidt is there. That's uh, Alphabet Inc. I like that in the article that we're going to talk about in a bit. He's referred to as former Google CEO. Let's be real clear. That's because he runs the company that runs Google now. That's not like he left the industry. And Bill Gates is in there and there's a bunch of other just tech billionaires somehow i'm I'm almost shocked that elon musk is not on this list uh well elon musk just had a baby of indeterminate name um so he's busy Do, do you really think that elon musk is doing anything to raise that child not that that's the point of this episode but uh no i have my doubts that grimes all right either yeah it's, it's the child. The that's child that's a very be, good point. The child will be raised by an algorithm that's written entirely in Elvish. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go for a Skinner box, but yeah, you're probably closer to right. <laughs> Why <laughs> oh, not? God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, in the meantime, and, and much closer to home, our, our dear leader, our governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo. So he he put together a blue ribbon commission, which is funny because it, it always gives you the image of like a bunch of prize dogs just like sitting around and deciding things um, to sort of reimagine life in in New York State. And it's it's very interesting because the people who actually do this kind of job, like no educators are on the education panel. My understanding is that uh, basically most of the the healthcare panel is a bunch of uh, business people and health executives that have no business actually treating patients at the moment. And we're going to be very heavily drawing on this extremely timely article that Walter dug up for us. It's called the um, <laughs> Screen New Deal, Undercover of Mass uh. Death. Uh, yeah. 
Andrew Cuomo calls in the billionaires to build a high-tech dystopia. It's by Naomi Klein by, um, for The Intercept. It's very, very timely, May 8th, just two days ago. And um, we can sort of talk about what what's going on here. What is the main thrust if the name Screen New Deal didn't tip you off? What are Cuomo and his billionaire friends trying to do for us here? The, the main thing that jumped out at me when I was reading this article, or even like even before I read this article, when I first heard the news of Cuomo appointing these these panels, was just its top down model of society. You know, like you said, Noah, there's no there's no teachers on the 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 education panel. There's no actual like doctors or nurses on the healthcare panel. This is purely the masters of the neoliberal universe coming to New York. At, at, at Cuomo's behest to impose their vision of, of society on the rest of us without any of our input into it. And I mean, you know, we've already talked at length about what that society is going to look like. We're going to, it's going to mean a more surveilled workforce. It's going to be a workforce that has even less of a, uh, you know, division between work and private life because they want us to, uh, you know, live these atomized existence in our own homes where, uh, you know, as, as Naomi Klein puts in the article, you know, our homes become uh, our workplaces, our entertainment centers. Um, and if the state has its way, our jails too. Um, and so that, that, that's the kind of the dystopia we're looking at here. Um, and so just, you know, looking through it. So Eric Schmidt's the one for the primarily focusing on healthcare. And so the big thing there is telehealth. And so rather than going to see your doctor or going to see a nurse or going to see anyone involved in your health, you'll be sitting at home and discussing your, your health issues without actual human presence in between, you know, mediating uh, between you and them. Um, the goal of that is to just, uh, again, extract as much possible money as possible from people by basically stretching out healthcare workers, anticipating that they're going to be able to serve more patients uh, over the internet than they would, you know, in an office environment. Never mind anything about quality of healthcare. That's not the point. It's profit generation. And then even more chilling to me is getting the Gates Foundation involved in education. This so-called philanthropy, uh, his goal has been to privatize education uh, since it was founded. The Gates Foundation spearheaded the charter school initiative, and now that the charter schools have started to founder. Uh, on their own failures to deliver what they were promised because it was never the point. Uh, the Gates Foundation is going to look at remote education as a, a new way to, again, remove schools from the public good, privatize education, monetize education, incidentally bust teachers' unions, um, and create this new world where uh, education is something that happens uh at the home, away from the school, and it's cheaper and more profitable for the people in charge of it. Yeah, it's it's amazing how many times that the uh, disruptor that all these tech bros keep saying for the past, I don't know, 20 years, is the disruptor is always to go in and um, remove institutions that were founded or had evolved into public goods or areas where workers had at least some ability to control the conditions in which they were working. And this just, it's never disrupting is never going after management styles or anything like that. It's always 
working at the foundations of, of the working class and the ability for everyday people to access goods and services. That's always it. Naomi Klein gets at this in the article. I'm, I'm going to quote a paragraph here that I think pretty much nails exactly what the vision is. I, I think it's important with these tech bros because the thing with it is the Schmitz and Gateses and Musks, and uh, you can basically fill in any of the surveillance insert expletive here before I uh, mistakenly get us fined by the FCC or any of these other uh, people. You can slot any of them into this, but they all want to sell you a future where, as Walter said in the last segment, you know, they wanted to do it by saying, well, tech will make everything more convenient. And that's why it's all bright colors and simple shapes and other kindergarten stuff. But now they're selling it to you based on safety, based on fear, which is an easier sell. And it's very important to note that the actual vision of society that they are endorsing does not fit this at all. It's, and this is where I'm going to quote from Klein, the, the future that they want is a future in which, for the privileged, almost everything is home delivered, either virtually via streaming and cloud technology or physically via driverless vehicle or drone, then screen shared, quote unquote, on a mediated platform. It's a future that employs far fewer teachers, doctors, and drivers. It accepts no cash or credit cards under guise of virus control and has skeletal mass transit and far less live art. It's a feature that claims to be run on, quote unquote, artificial intelligence, but it's actually held together by tens of millions of anonymous workers tucked away in warehouses, data centers, content moderation mills, electronic sweatshops, lithium mines, industrial farms, meat processing plants, and prisons, where they are left unprotected from disease and hyper-exploitation. It's a feature in which our every move, our every word, our every relationship, and this is so topical right now, is trackable, traceable, and data mineable by unprecedented collaborations between government and tech giants. And I think this is particularly galling in light of something that we have said on this show, that it's pretty ridiculous the degree to which Silicon Valley and the technology sort of uh, industry that is dominating the world right now, they've done so much to push this idea that they are completely independent from the public market, that they don't need the government to step in and tell them what to do. But they literally wouldn't be anywhere near where they are if it weren't for massive infusions from the public sector every time they run into the slightest trouble. Yeah. Uh, side note, because I've actually done research on this, um, the there are there are tons of people out there who are trying to push cashless payment options and ways of payment that rely on on high use of technology and everything. And there is just it should be said because it is not said nearly enough. There is no evidence that using touchless payment systems or, or doing any kind of uh, touchless transactions actually prevents COVID transmission. Um, it's something that people believe um, because it sounds zany. Um, and the people who tend to promote these kinds of payment structures and everything are usually tech bros and people who write for Forbes and, and don't have any actual basis in reality to do so. Like the, the WHO has said over uh, over and over again that there's no there's very low risk of COVID transmission through use of cash. And if anything, the elimination of cash and other payments forms like this is more exclusionary than helpful. And that there's still a good uh, chunk of the population that relies on cash transactions in order to survive because they don't have access to banking. They don't have access to mobile payment options or anything like that. So all of these things that they keep 
supporting is exactly what Noah quoted there, that these are ways to make, to create islands, little private islands in what is otherwise a really busy world for the rich and privileged. And we need to talk about it more that these methods, this, this emphasis on tech disruptors and going digital for education and, and other services is to the benefit of a small section of people overall. And that the rest of the world, a majority of the world is being left behind to die. One of the, like one of the, I think dominant conspiracy theories about COVID right now is that uh, COVID was engineered so that they could install 5g networks while everyone's locked down in their homes. Um, so, I mean, obviously COVID was not engineered. It's a completely natural phenomenon, but like all conspiracy theories, there's a kernel of truth uh, in that you see this with these, these blue ribbon panels. They always wanted to do this. They always wanted to install these systems of surveillance and uh, atomization. But like I said before, the rhetoric they were using shifted. Before it was a question of convenience. Now it's become a question of safety. Um, and they're using this this mm -hmm. crisis in classic shock doctrine manner uh, to impose something they already wanted to impose. Uh, because like Lou said, they're the ones who are going to profit from and benefit exclusively from it. One thing that strikes me about, you know, this potential dystopian future that Klein is writing about is, like she mentioned, it's going to create an even more bifurcated working class. There's going to be workers who can work at home, so still subject to surveillance, still subject to stretching out, still subject to control, uh, but having a degree of safety and autonomy that's different and separate from the workers uh, who service this new service class. So the people who deliver groceries, the people who deliver takeout food, uh, the people who ensure that the workers working at home uh, live in a modicum of safety and comfort, they're going to be completely separate uh, entities. And that's almost by design. It is by design. The goal is to uh, prevent the possibility of solidarity. Um, the goal is to prevent the possibility of organization. You're not going to be able to organize a workplace when you don't fundamentally work in the same place and conditions as uh you know the people who you're you know you're working alongside um and so rather than approaching the world or approaching your work from you know this, this basis of shared experience work is being degraded and ground down to where it's purely an individual experience where you're exclusively responsible for your conditions and your work um, and you're not able to address them in any meaningful way because there's no way for you to amass your power through organization um, as there would be if you had a, uh, you know, a shared workspace. Um, and so that that I think is primarily the goal here of, you know, atomizing the workforce, keeping it weak, keeping it, um, you know, keeping us weak and keeping us uh, unable to address uh, the consequences of these power imbalances. I think this brings up something that Lou said um, on last week's episode. We were talking about the stock market suddenly having uh, incredibly just just very good performance over the past month in you know a time when working class people are dying by the thousands. And Lou, you mentioned that 
you know, of course, the stock market would go back up because we've already discussed this. It's just the rich people's emotional index. And once rich people stop dying, being the main victims of uh, COVID, and once the burden of death, essentially, was shifted entirely over to working class people, then what did the rich care? They could do whatever they wanted. And I think this pretty much gets at it. They, they knew that sooner or later, by thinning out the few public institutions that we had left to the absolute bare bones, regardless of which party controls the White House, regardless of which party controlled Congress, they would be able to take advantage of anything here. And if I might be allowed a a slight aside, you know, we've done episodes on on Puerto Rico before and disaster capitalism there, which is, uh, that's where I'm from. And it is interesting to note that the rhetoric that was used to sell Puerto Ricans on, you know, cryptocurrency or Portopia or uh, Elon Musk putting in balloons or, uh, you know, Google uh, providing Wi-Fi for the entire island. There wasn't even an attempt to convince them that it would be a good thing. They were simply told because they're colonial subjects. Puerto Ricans were simply told, this is going to happen to you and you're just going to have to put up with it. So it's it's interesting to note that even somebody like Andrew Cuomo, who is, uh, Walter, as you pointed out, it taking an, an entirely top-down approach to this and um, essentially asking us to trust in a bunch of oligarchs to get this, uh, get this done and, and reimagine life in the state, even then they have to convince us that we should trust them because they might have our best interests at heart. I mean, they don't, but they're trying to convince us that they but do. But they might. Yeah. And I think there's there's a weird expectation that at the same time, you know, I coming back to my experience here, I teach a lot of students who want to be the next Eric Schmidt. They want to be the next Bill Gates. They want to be the next Elon Musk. And they don't understand why they're really not going to be allowed to be that, but that's okay. Whatever, they're teenagers. They have time to learn. Um, but one of, one of the things with them is that we have slowly made it clear to children in this country, to a lot of children in this country, that not only would you not be allowed to join the upper class, but that the upper class shouldn't want people to join it. The thing is they're drawing the wrong lesson from this. Their thought is I'm going to get just good enough at whatever it is to join this class. And then I'm actively going to kick the ladder down after me for a lot of students that we have now. The thought is, I I don't know how they're going to take what's currently happening because, I mean, for a lot of my kids, their parents are suffering in this, but I don't know that they're going to draw the right inferences. I don't think they're going to think, well, we need to improve, you know, access to healthcare and we need to widen out gains uh, in the economy when they happen. I think they're going to, the lesson that they're going to take, unfortunately, is I need to scrabble to find me a bigger piece of the pie so that I am as immune as possible to this. Yeah, that's a that's likely to happen. What what's so frustrating about the way technology is getting used here is that there are real like liberate liberatory aspects to this technology that if it were being democratically managed could make our lives, you know, better, more autonomous, more free. Um that's just not happening. Like uh like telehealth services for instance, like they're clearly going to use it to stretch out healthcare workers. But like if managed properly, this could be used in like a Medicare for all society or single payer society to improve access, to ensure people get basic primary care um, and, you know, to ensure that people are getting, you know, the health, you know, the the health access they need Uh, in a school environment. This technology could separate some of the layers of administration that are bogging down 
you know, universities or secondary education and provide a more, you know, direct contact between teacher and student. Again, if this were being managed democratically, you know, this is something that could be beneficial to people, but it's not being managed democratically. It's being managed hierarchically. Cuomo is imposing this technology on people. Um, Cuomo, Schmidt, and the rest of them see this as a way to uh, make a workforce that's more efficient, more surveillable, um, and ultimately more profitable for the capitalist class. Um, and we are going to be the victims of, uh, you know, this system. And, you know, again, just to hammer the point, the COVID situation is making it difficult to organize even already. You know, we, we can't meet in public. We can't go lobby our, 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 our representatives. We can't do all the kinds of, uh, we can't undertake the same kinds of tactics that are effective in, uh, you know, halting these kinds of, uh, you know, negative aspects or negative impositions on us. And believe me, Cuomo and the politicians know that. They know that they could just ram all this through um, because there's nobody who's going to tell them otherwise. And then when COVID's over, well, it's already done. What are we going to do now? We can't, we can't turn back the clock. Mm-hmm. I think I, just to add to the previous side note, but taking that into account, um, I come from a place where a lot of things that were once conspiracy theories are now historical fact and, and have become because we finally get access to, you know, FBI files or old Puerto Rico police department things. And I think the reason that you're seeing so many, so much paranoia and so much conspiracy building around COVID is that that kernel of truth, I mean, when the results of the thing are as bleak as they have been for us, that if if you are a Trump voter, the main thing that you have to support now is that he owns the libs, because I mean, none of this has worked out at all. There, There's just nothing about our response that has been in any way well done or orderly or even remotely competent. And then if you look at what politicians like Cuomo, if you look at the sort of official democratic response to these things, there's just nothing being done for the average person. Right now, you've got the quote-unquote dismissible left is the only sector, political sector, arguing for things that are extremely necessary. And while you do have a few very champion weather veins in Congress uh, beginning to notice which way the wind is blowing, they're not going to notice quickly enough, or uh, they're not going to obey that sort of that 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 wind. They're going to stick to their principles at the worst possible time to stick to horrible principles, and they're just going to end up immiserating uh, people, making their lives worse, making their work lives worse permanently. And we have to think about what a working class would look like if it were able to empower itself. And as you've both said, Walter and Lou, what a working class that is going to be in two very different sectors if the Cuomo's and Schmidt's and Gates's of the world get their way. Just beyond Cuomo's current thing of, of making a tech paradise in New York, he's trying to set us trying to set New York up as like the alternate to um, California and, and New York will be the new tech paradise, even though we have 21,000 people dead and 
eight weeks or however long we've been doing this. Um, we are, we, we as a state alone have a worse death toll than many countries around the world. I think majority of countries, um, we, we're number one guys. We, we rule and we just can't, we keep overlooking the fact that we as a state are a catastrophe right now. Um, other, we can't reopen, like forget the protests to reopen. We could not reopen right now if we wanted to, because there are just so many people who have died and still so many people out there who have, or are currently being infected. Um, our, uh, active cases in the County keep rising. Um, and so we're looking at some months of shutdown because of the mismanagement. And part of that is on a national level. We don't have the infrastructure to do anything like that. We don't have the hospital space. We don't have the um, public resources to do anything like unemployment for millions of people. Like we have nothing. We have nothing. And, and the total number of people who have died as a result of this is a reject. Re a direct result of the fact that we did not have the social resources to do any of this. And instead of actually doing the sensible thing of shoring up the foundations of the very little that we do have, like supporting universal healthcare and Medicare and Medicaid, um, supporting unemployment like that, providing more and more funding for education. Uh, Cuomo has been cutting these things. He has been cutting Medicare hospital support education funding during this crisis and instead saying, no, we're going to have more apps. That's what we need to solve this problem is more apps and more technology and more, more, more tech. What the heck is wrong with you to think that this is a solution for the majority of people that the basic fundamental resources of food and health and housing have not been taken care of. But somehow we need to disrupt the economy enough to fix these problems. We need another app to figure out who's going to be able to live in a house and who's going to get food next week. We can't even do the basics of that. And he wants to create a new app. And the fact that he has 80% approval rating, despite not doing a dang thing to support actual people in this state, let alone the country, is appalling. Yeah, and that 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 gets to you know one of my really deepest concerns about like some of the way these technologies are going to be used um, once they get imposed on us. Like we know one of the reasons COVID has been so bad in the United States and New York is because we have this profit-seeking healthcare system that operates you know on efficiencies that make it really effectively impossible for them to deal with crises like this. They just didn't have the bed space. They didn't have the machinery. They didn't have the capacity because they're focused on other things rather than healthcare. And I think what we're going to see with this top-down imposition of telehealth is rather than expanding access, it's just going to be used to further cut down healthcare systems to the bones. There'll be fewer beds, uh, you know, fewer spaces for actual patients, um, because they're just going to move everything away from hospitals toward telehealth. And so the next time, uh, you know, a COVID or another pandemic like this hits, um, the consequences are going to be even worse because the healthcare systems by design 
are going to be even less prepared to deal with it. Yeah. We are in a world where we are being forced to die alone in our homes, either of COVID or starvation. And that's the active conclusion that a lot of people in government have been pushing for. I couldn't have put it better than either of you have done, or both of you rather, have done over the past few minutes. I know that in happier times, we try to end these shows on a high note, but honestly, there isn't much of a high note to be found. And I think if we can leave you with anything, it's that if you've been listening to this and you find this depressing and appalling as a present, so do we. The question is, what are we going to do to change it? Unfortunately, for now, our hour is up. So I'm Noah. I'm Lou. I'm Walter. Stay safe, everyone. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.